Hello and welcome to episode 30 of The Wind Thieved Hat. My guest is the palliative care doctor and best-selling author, Catherine Mannix. Given that this is a podcast about the creative process, she may seem to be a rather unusual guest. But as you'll discover, Catherine is a brilliant wordsmith and someone who has a great deal to say about stories. The stories we use to make sense of life and of death. Catherine's self-declared mission is to make us all more comfortable with the idea of dying. And this, of course, is something we discuss. But we also talk about creativity in medicine, about the process of writing, how to give stories the space to tell themselves. And she has a fascinating theory on why it seems that only the good die young. Catherine has to be one of the wisest people to join me on The Wind Thieved Hat. She's also one of the most honest and humble. Oh, and we were both recording in our respective homes in the countryside. So we're joined by sheep and birds and cows and other country stuff in the background along the way. But I think you can handle that. So sit back, relax and enjoy episode 30 of The Wind Thieved Hat. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, Richard. Lovely to see you. Yeah, you too. Really nice. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. It's um, it's uh, it's a real privilege to have you on uh, this episode of the Wind Thieved Hat. Well, that's very kind of you. I actually feel it's my honour to be here. So let's let's both proceed like that. That'll be lovely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're you're up at home in Northumberland, are you? I am. Today? Yes. So I'm not sure whether our listeners might still be able to hear, despite the headphones and mic. The sheep are trying to find the lambs because everybody got taken away for, I don't know, probably worming or something. Okay, yeah. right. Bleating coming over the hedge into the house. Dis- distressed sheep. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I, I'm here in South Wales, so um, it's not an unfamiliar sound to me yeah. either. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, thanks very much for coming. Um, uh, I, I, I thought I'd begin by by sharing how I first found out about you. And I was sitting on my sofa one afternoon, idly flicking through the review section of the Guardian, and um, and I think it was a review of your second book, Listen. Uh, and in that review, there was a line. It, it was um, and it was taken from the book. We limp to wisdom over the hot coals of our mistakes. Bind your feet now and keep walking. And I I read this and I thought, wow, not only is that a truth, I think, about life and how this thing works, but but, but also it was beautifully expressed. And it led me into your work and to finding out a bit more about you. And I I then bought a copy of um, With the End in Mind, uh, which we will talk about and listen to. And I guess if there's anything, um, you know, what, uh, common that underpins those two books, it, it's, it's, it's about learning and it's about discovery. And um, there's, a, there's an anecdote that Listen begins with, where, where, where you actually, you get a punch in the face, don't you, from a, a, a disgruntled family member um, who, mm-hmm. who early on in your career, you, you're, you're a little bit clumsy with, with how you, you talk to them. So I guess I guess my first question is is how 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 significant have your own mistakes been to you throughout your career? 
oh, I think hugely significant. I was, I was quite grown up before I realised that mistakes aren't tragedies, they're learning opportunities. So it, I think as a, as a student and as a, a junior doctor, I always saw mistakes as something to be embarrassed about. And right. So I would reflect on them, but I would reflect on them in a not terribly productive way, um, more about um, how not to make the same mistake again, which I guess is important, and it's very important in medicine. But I wasn't curious about what had happened in order that the mistake was kind of the, the, the pinnacle of, of other things that underlay it. And then I heard a talk by, and I'm going to have a senior moment now, so I might have to put this wonderful. <laughs> right. um, he, uh, he's a, a fantastic speaker about making mistakes who's actually a, an orchestral conductor. And okay. his name will come to me. And if it doesn't, I will send you one of his tapes because absolutely phenomenal, inspirational person. But his catch line is, I made a mistake. How interesting. Okay. And I thought, yeah, that is absolutely right. And particularly in medicine, the person who makes the mistake very often is the person who's at the most pointy end of the medical um, interaction with the patient. Yeah. But that the system has allowed the mistake to happen is also interesting. So we have mm -hmm. to think, does this person need to know better, need some more training? Or does this system need some rearranging? Or is it not about training, but about support? How did this thing come to happen to this patient? It may have been a mistake made by this doctor, me or another doctor, or this nurse or, or whoever. But actually, this person should have been held safe in a system mm -hmm. that reduced the chances of that thing happening. So that, that made me curious. I made a mistake. But also, if I've made a mistake, I can perhaps retrieve it. I can make things better or I can apologize. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, so that's one of the things that I did this week. I bumped somebody's car in a car park. Oh, dear. And... Um, I left a note on the windscreen to apologise. It didn't look as though I'd done very much damage to their car, actually. I'd scraped a bit of paint on my bumper, but okay. that paint was lying like powder on their bumper. And when I rubbed it, it all rubbed off. But I felt I couldn't just walk away. I left a note on yeah. the windscreen. But then I didn't hear anything for 48 hours. And I thought, oh, no, I've done something terrible. Their car's in a body shop. They're going to get back to me and say it's going to be like thousands of pounds. And I got this really lovely text to say, thank you for being so honest. Um, it's, it hasn't done any damage. And I hope your car is okay as well. Oh, great. And just thought, oh, okay. So I made a mistake. And the mistake is that I'm driving a car that I'm not quite used to yet. Yeah. And I need to, you know, be a little bit more wary of the width of that bumper at the front. That's why we have bumpers, luckily. Yeah. So I didn't crunch into somebody else's car, but I needed to be curious what happened. I was in a hurry. It was at the hospital. I wasn't quite thinking straight, those sorts of things. Yeah. So it's what can we learn? What can we do differently next time? How can we just think about situations like this differently yeah. next time? Yeah. And I, and I think, too, when it... Um, when it comes to the creative process, being prepared to 
to expose yourself, to be vulnerable, to um, be in the position where you know things might go wrong is a necessary requirement, really. Um, and this makes me think a bit of your book, Listening. And, 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 and um, if you are to have um, a, a meaningful and mutually rewarding conversation with someone about a tender subject, then you've got a, there, there needs to be some vulnerability, doesn't there? A, a, a preparedness to expose oneself to, to the possibility of a mistake. Yeah, I, I think that's the central thesis of listen, really, is that if we think about conversations as something we do to somebody, and it's easy to make that mistake if you're in a powerful position, like being somebody's doctor, Yeah. Um, then all the vulnerability is on one side and all of the power is on the other side. And actually... In medicine generally, but in palliative and end-of-life care, which is where I'm from in particular, that's not the right balance because there's immense wisdom and knowledge and understanding and expertise at being me, living with this illness, in this family, in these circumstances, in the person we call the patient, but which Mm -hmm. I try very hard to call person or people when I'm writing because patient itself is a diminishing term. And they have all of that richness of humanity that we have too. And we have a little bit of additional knowledge or experience that might be helpful for them, but we need to know where to put it. We Mm. need to know which bit of it will be most helpful. Mm. So there's a tendency, particularly when you're younger, you're a medical student, junior doctor, and you ask the person to explain what's troubling them. Um, and the first thing they tell you that you can do something about, you stop them there and you make the conversation be about that. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually, again, it comes back to curiosity. What is it that's happening to this person? And we know ourselves when we're talking to somebody we don't know terribly well, or we've got something really big to say, we'll try out some not-so-big things first. We're just going to judge, engage, and we'll feel our way into that conversation before we drop the actual thing that we're worrying about. So if we, as the person listening, decide to fixate on the first thing they tell us, we've probably already passed the point of no return in terms of understanding what's the real issue here. And that goes for doctors and the people who we're serving. But it it goes for Mm. life partners, parents and children, friendship groups, peers, colleagues. Being curious is the thing that gets us to the place where the real thing is happening. Yeah. And I think one of the great things about with the end in mind is that um, it's, it's you being illuminated as well by the experiences that you have with the people that you were you were treating as uh, as a doctor, and um, we'll, we'll we'll come on to that book in in a little while, and um, and some of those moments. But I want I wanted to ask you. Um, I, I read that you said you are an accidental writer and a, a doctor who'd written a book rather than a writer, and I wondered now with two best selling books whether you feel like a writer. <laughs> Um, I had a feeling we might have this conversation. 
Oh, I've just been doing some intense hoovering, which is another one of my thinking moments okay. to think that one through. Last week, I filled in an application form to do something. And because I'm retired from medicine, it asked for occupation and retired seemed not fully the truth. Uh, yeah. And I actually wrote medical writer. And okay. So still, still hedging a little bit. Oh, yeah. 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 Paused <laughs> over the form. Actually, do you know what? That's interesting. I hadn't seen that as hedging, but you're right. It is hedging. But I still, it took me ages to be able to press continue on this form. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I, I understand that. And, um, uh, it's a, it's a funny thing, isn't it? I, cause I, I, you know, I wrote a book earlier this year and I, I still hesitate to, to use the term author. Or or, or 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 writer, it's funny, isn't it? The, the sort of reverence we we hold for that. But I, I, um, when I first made contact with you um, uh, and sent you an email, um, I, I, you, you said I'm a little daunted to be asked about my creative process. I tend to sit in the kitchen and type, trying to catch the stories as they tell themselves. Is that a process? And I, and I read that and I thought. Bingo. Yes. This is exactly the kind of person that I want to have a conversation with because I thought that was such a lovely phrase, trying to catch the stories as they tell themselves. Could you, um, could you tell us a little bit more about, um, about what that, what that means in practice? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to. So I've, I've always written, I've always written things down. Um, and, what I've tried to do is distill ideas out of situations. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that the ideas themselves um, kind of bubble up from the story of the situation. And I'm from a, a family of storytellers. As a child, uh, my parents told us stories. I was quite surprised to discover that those stories were in books when I was older. Um and I, as a parent, have been a storyteller to my children. And when I'm working with patients as well, what we're trying to do is make sense of the story that they're having. So right. stories are part of just who I am and how I see the world. And uh-huh. when I came to write my first book with the end in mind, I knew that what I wanted to do was to help people who are um, not familiar with what ordinary dying is, what it looks like, what it sounds like, how it gradually evolves, which is almost all of us these days don't know that. And I wanted people to become familiar with it in the same way that my grandmother was familiar with it because in the early 1900s, when she was a teenager and a young woman, she was a person who attended dying people on their sick beds because that's the way it was. There was no National Health Service. Most people who were dying of something couldn't be stopped from dying of it. Why would you go to the hospital for that? Um, and so people understood the process from having seen it lots of times. And mm-hmm. what they understood was how it can be different from person to person, but also how there's a process underneath that that is recognisable and describable and you can respond to it. So I wanted people to understand that. And I thought if I sit down and write a doctorly book, an expert says these are the things you should look for, that would be just so dull. 
You know, yeah. I wouldn't read that. I need to give them eyes to be alongside people. I need to invite people to come and watch and be present and mind enough about the person who we're looking at together that they are invested in the story as though they are on a chair at that bedside, as though they're mm. on a sofa in that living room, as though they're out on that shopping expedition with that person. Um, so it was obvious to me that that was going to be stories. That was how we did disciplinary things for our children when they were little. Strangely, the people in their stories that they loved would have difficult situations to solve that were just incredibly similar, but not quite the same as something that happened to us recently. Mm-hmm. And so we can work through possibilities and they can give advice to the person in the story. And that's how we manage to synthesize learning out of unfortunate events sometimes. So I wanted to try and do something like that for the readers mm. of this book. And so I had to somehow write what ordinarily I would say. And I needed to write it so that they could hear the voice in which I would be telling it. Um, So I had a kind of idea in my head that I was sitting on a two-seater sofa or on a chair beside another chair. And the person who's reading the book is beside me. Okay. And we are looking at this thing happening. We're listening. We're watching. We're taking it all in. And we're intrigued by it, and we're not affecting it, we're simply observing it, and then reflecting on what it is. And so, in my head, what I found was that I would start to tell a story, and then the story somehow would tell itself. And... That happens when I'm telling stories aloud as well, but I hadn't yeah. realised how strongly it was going to be obvious that that was what was happening when I was trying to type instead. Yeah. And so it almost felt like um, just kind of parting curtains in front of me. Right. And not just watching, but hearing the story. So uh-huh. when that sentence we leap to wisdom over the hot coals of our mistakes came to me. Yeah. I needed to go online and check that I hadn't read it somewhere else. Wow. Because it arrived like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it absolutely described the situation that I was talking about, which was me doing something so badly wrong that I still live with the sorrow of it. Um, my feet still hurt. My feet are still burned by the hot coals of that mistake. And yet I am so much a better doctor for every other patient who I haven't let down in the way that I let that patient down because Mm -hmm. I can never make it right for that family, Mm -hmm. but I can do better and be better and inspire other people to do better and be better than I was on that occasion. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting um, to hear you describe it, the process of writing like that. I mean, it, so- it sounds very much um, like the state of creative flow. You know, when, 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 when these often writers will talk about 
the writing can be really tough (laughs) as many people listening to this podcast will uh, will will acknowledge but there are those moments as you describe when when you're almost a sort of you know a a, a conduit you know that you you're the tool putting down the words on the paper but the words are coming from somewhere else i remember reading an interview with them hilary mantel you know arguably one of the most accomplished um writers alive at the moment and she was saying how you know, if I look back at my work, I think I'm not clever enough to do that. <laughs> Where on earth did this stuff come come from? Um, and for her, it's really about getting yourself in the right frame of mind to sort of receive the words, and 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 the words coming through you. Um, and it's 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 really interesting to hear you say that um, that 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 image we began talking about. You 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 felt that. You know, you'd already heard it, and it came from somewhere else. And it's interesting, also. I I, I recall Hilary Mantel saying exactly that. And I, the other thing that struck me in reading that interview is that one of the things that happens when we write is that we dare to express things in a way that we probably wouldn't express them in conversation. Mm-hmm. That there is. Uh, an ability to use words to describe engagements or emotions or vulnerability that in day-to-day conversation we wouldn't do. So there's a sense of, well, certainly in in the way that I'm writing, a, a lot of it is saying, this happened to this person and I happen to be there so I can tell you about it. Um, and in observing what's happening to this person, I'm, I'm moved, I'm changed, I'm vulnerable. And I, you know, when I'm presenting that patient on a ward round to the consultant, I'm not using any of that language. It's all very medical, clinical, clipped mm-hmm. to the point. But actually Mm -hmm. what happened when I talked to that person, what happened when I spent time with that person, was that both of us were transformed by that encounter. Mm -hmm. And I may go on to be just one of a gazillion doctors whose names and faces have all blurred in that person's head, but that encounter has changed me in a way that I am not going to forget. And it's... um... You know, for, for for those of us who are um, who are not doctors and who go into a medical environment, it usually seems as if the the, the medical profession is very sort of you know cool, um, unemotional <laughs> being uh, that is somehow insulated from the gravity of of, of what's going on. And and <clears throat> reading with the end in mind, we do get um, a sense of how profoundly you are affected. Um, in some of these um, literally life or death situations, and you talk on a number of occasions about having to having to hold back the tears, you know, deliberately mm. <laughs> not crying at, 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 at that point. And I, I, I wondered how emotional it was to 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 revisit these stories in the writing. Deeply emotional. So a lot of the stories um, are stories that I kept a record of at the time that they happened. So uh, when I was a medical student and a junior doctor, we didn't have the kind of psychological support resources that are 
available but probably not quite used enough yet by uh, healthcare professionals. Um, so if I wanted to not have something in my head weighing on me, I had to put it somewhere and where I put it was on a piece of paper. So of course, right. although they're all dated, there are no names on them. And they're actually quite perfunctory. They are this, there's, there's the story, roughly, and my reflection on it. But in order not to make it self-indulgent, <laughs> I wouldn't allow myself to write more than a single sheet of A4. Okay. So I've got this kind of archive of nameless people whose faces and voices, when I read my record, come back to me. As, as though they were still in front of me. Right. And something really extraordinary that happened was that it was like time travel. So I had a, a record about a particular person, a particular episode of care, a particular event that happened, which is in with the end in mind. And it's the story of uh, a, a very um, lovely, quite posh lady and her relative, whose identity has been changed a little bit in the book because it's somebody actually quite well known, um, and an amaryllis plant that is yes. growing in a way that looks provocatively like a green penis, which causes huge amusement, of course, to all of the nursing staff on the ward, and yeah. to which this very posh lady seems to be utterly oblivious. But as I was reading my notes about that lady and the plant and the relative who made the jokes about the plant. I remembered that there had been um, a particular conversation that was between this lady and the family of the lady in the bed opposite to her. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that okay. family. Oh, oh, my word. Yes. And in fact, when they came in, another light came on. There were four beds in this bay. And now there's a light over the bed of the Japanese lady in the yeah. next bed, who, and then the, the last light came on. It's almost like a stage lighting okay. up. So the yeah. Japanese lady missing her Shinto spirituality, who mm -hmm. chummed up with the very devout Catholic lady in the bed opposite, and they had very deep spiritual conversations. And now, from just having recorded a little bit of episodes of something a little bit silly, actually, mm -hmm. I've got the time travel of I can stand in that room I know mm -hmm. what time of year it was I know what time of day it was I can see these four women I can visualize their families I can re remember the conversations and then I start to feel the feelings and then the story arrives and that's astonishing and then the next time I look up it's several hours later and I've typed pages and mm -hmm. you know a little bit like hillary mantel who came and did that then what yeah. how, how did that happen i missed meals um yeah. i you know it just in that state of there's a story here and it is telling itself to me and i need yeah. to obey it yeah. happens whereas on other occasions i think oh i know it would be a good story to tell i'll tell the story of and i sit down to write it and i'm not quite settled and I need a cup of tea and I go back and I read that paragraph again and I think, oh, those sentences yeah. need to be the other way around. And then eventually it's finished and I go away and I leave it and I come back the next day to look at it. It's like a case yeah. report for a medical journal. There's no magic. Yeah. There's yeah. no curiosity. There's no mystery. 
I wrote it. It didn't write itself, and it's the yes. wrong. Yes, the wrong thing happened. So I've got no idea yeah. what the alchemy is yeah. that makes it sometimes be this, or sometimes be that. I just yeah. know that sometimes the way I'm writing is that the story is being written, yeah, and other times it's less satisfactory when I am writing the story. Yes, 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 uh, and I'm sure many people listening can relate to that. Um, what one of the things I um, I found is that if we um, if we delay evaluation of our work when we're making work. That's often a good way to to loosen up, you know, to get past the initial sort of difficult inertia of getting going. And um, uh, I found that sometimes helpful, you know, when when, when the story's not going so well, just to go, well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna write it. I'm just gonna get it down, uh, whether yeah. it's it's good or bad. Yeah, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Turning up, bum on the seat. Yeah, you're going to write more that you can do something with than. Yes. Than not, and there's a bit of me that sometimes thinks, "Oh no, I'll go away and think about it a bit." Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then I have a gazillion great ideas, and they've all gone out of my mind by the time I sit down again. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I have yeah. I have taken to carrying a notebook. Yes. So, right. am I turning into a writer? Maybe I, I am. Think, Maybe I this think, is part of the metamorphosis. I think you might be a writer, Catherine. I've got to break it to you. I, 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 I hesitate to say this because, you know, obviously you've got your medical training, but I did read that, um, that when we're in the state of creative flow, it is the only time when the six most pleasurable neurotransmitters in the brain are released all at once. You know, right. it's, um, it's, it's why it feels so good. You know, what you're talking about missing meals and, and time just falling away, that, that zone yeah. um, uh, is... Is a, is, is a wonderful place to be. One of the great things about the book, we've talked about stories and how it's, it's a series of stories, but the stories themselves are very acutely observed. You know, they're, they're very vivid in their description, detailed in terms of character and setting and, and this kind of thing. Um, and yet there was a requirement for anonymity uh, in, in, in the stories. So I just wondered how you handled that. You know that 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 um, recognition that to make the story vivid, you must use detail. But if you use detail, there is the danger that you reveal somebody's yeah. identity. Yeah, it was a really important tension. And so, in the first book, because I've made those those notes right through my career, not with any intention of publishing. I mean. At the, I think if I'd thought at the beginning I might publish these, I wouldn't have let myself write them because that okay. feels like such a transgression of the confidentiality contract. Mm -hmm. And it still feels to me like a transgression of the confidentiality contract. So I have to say that at the outset. But it also seemed to me that the world was hurting because of a lack of understanding of dying and that this mm -hmm. was a really, really important mission really, and if that doesn't sound too grandiose, but I think that I think that is what it is. And that um, the only way to tell it genuinely is to share real episodes rather than just kind of amalgamate it into um, a wise person's anecdotes. I think that mm -hmm. doesn't work. Or or there's a there's a lack of 
honesty there. So I struggled with the the breach of confidence to the extent that I took the idea of writing this book to the clinical ethics committee in the hospital where I work to say, look, I'm thinking about doing this. There's a publisher who's interested in publishing it, but I'm really struggling with the, and I was a member of that committee. They know that I'm a person who's got um, an understanding of ethics as well as a, a kind of moral conscience um and so we've looked for the guidelines general medical council has guidelines about using real stories to educate but it's only about education of other healthcare professionals it doesn't mm-hmm. say anything about public education so we talked about the importance of anonymizing and it turns out that you can anonymize people relatively easily by changing two or three key things about them and that allows the story to be told in truth. It allows the pictures in my head to still be the pictures of that person. Um, but it also allows there to be sufficient misleading information about their characteristics. Mm-hmm. Now the story can be told with absolute truth. Because it's really hard for a reader to say, well, this, that's definitely my granddad. Except, of course, every elderly man who's dying in the book could definitely be somebody's granddad because the process of dying will be the process they saw with their granddad because that's the process. Yeah. But there were half a dozen stories where actually the defining characteristic of the person couldn't be changed or the story was worthless so one in particular that comes to my mind is there's a a young man who's uh, a deep sea diver mm-hmm. and part of his story is about a nightmare that he has during the period of time when he's not able to acknowledge how close to death he is and it's a nightmare about diving so if i didn't make him a diver none of the rest of the story would work yeah so i knew i had to go and find that family because they would clearly identify him and that would be a harm to them if they felt their story had been told without permission. So of these half dozen, I was able to track down most of the families. There's a story that I'm not able to tell because I can't find the family. And it's it's such an important story, but it's not a story that I can tell without permission. Mm -hmm. But every family that I tracked down was delighted absolutely delighted that this was happening that this book was being written that their story was being told and that they wished that this information or a book like this had been available when they were going through the thing that i'm telling the Mm -hmm. story of and Mm -hmm. one of the people in the book the only person whose real name is used was alive by the time his chapter was written and he gave me feedback notes about it, which was absolutely lovely. So wow. it, it was important to anonymise, but it was important to maintain the integrity of the stories. And so there were two things yes. I did, change particular characteristics and also for some of the stories, different things happened to different people, but they became one person's story. So everything that happened yeah. is true but not yeah. necessarily to that individual. 
And that then helps me to be able to say at the beginning of the book, I tried really hard to make it not possible for these people to be identified, apart from those people who I know are identifiable and whose families have given permission, which was really important to me. By the time I got to writing Listen, I, I evolved a bit in my thinking about telling the stories. And so there are several stories in Listen which are definitely a kind of amalgam of experiences under those circumstances. So although I've chosen a particular storyline to tell, those families are kind of representatives of mm-hmm. people who've been in those situations I see. most often. And what was really rather lovely was at the end of uh, Listen going off for its final read-through, of course, the, the publishers give it a, a legal read because I'm talking about real people. And uh, the, the legal department came back and said they were perfectly happy with it, apart from one family who they felt were um, identifiable because of the closeness of my relationship with them. And they were the only family who were complete fantasy. Each of the individuals in the story was a person, but yeah. they were not a family. Okay. And okay. I, I was I was pleasantly surprised by that because actually I thought, Ooh, maybe my maybe this is a stepping stone into writing fiction if I've been able to convince the legal department yeah. that that yeah. these are these yeah. are people who related to each other in this way. Yeah. Yeah, and I, because I, I, I think you've handled it really well. You know, I've I've read a few books where, for one reason or another, you know, it's had to be, um, you know, an amalgamation of characters, let's say, or something like that. But you really do feel they, they, they you know, they they um, they feel authentic. I suppose is the word. So, um, you've now written uh, these two books. What 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 things have you come to understand about the process of? Of writing from 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 making these two books, are there, are there things now that you you do that you you maybe wouldn't have done when you first began, or things that you could share with us that um, that you've discovered about this 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 strange thing we do? Yeah, okay. I think the, th- the first thing I've discovered is that it is a strange thing, and um, that it isn't like uh, any other job because it's so unpredictable. And what I set out to write in the morning might be something completely different by the afternoon. But that's okay. So the second thing I've learned is that I, there is a process. I don't understand it, but there is one. And to trust it, to just go yeah. with it. Because at the end of a period of writing, there will be something to read back. Sometimes I can read it back and think, oh, actually, do you know what? This is nearly there. And sometimes I read it back and think, who do you even think you are writing this down? But very often, you know, those case report ones, um, the real problem with them is that they start at the beginning, they go to the middle and they end up at the end. And a good story very often doesn't do that. So when I'm stuck with them, uh, what I do is I start in the middle. So I start again, same story. Yeah. What would happen if we just started in the middle here? Yeah. And see what happens. And very often what happens is now I'm not trying to tell the story like a doctor. The story is allowed to tell itself 
And it may yeah. end up rearranging itself so that it starts at the beginning, goes to the middle and ends up at the end. Yeah. But the viewpoints or the things that seem important or the, the language somehow are different. And when this story is telling itself, um, I remember reading back one of, one of the stories in, with the end in mind is about being called to a person at home and he's been being very sick and I used to have an expertise in nausea and vomiting. So the GP had called me out to see this man. And when I read the story back, what struck me was how much the story is about the play of light on things. Children mm. playing in the street outside the way the light was filtered through the blinds in the living room. And that isn't in my notes, but it's in my head and I can see mm. it. And that the whole story is about illuminating something he'd been trying not to think about until he's eventually able to make his declaration of love on his deathbed to his long-term partner, who's a virtually a stepmother to his daughters who are there and yet I hadn't noticed and that was one of the stories that started off as a, as a case story that I didn't think I was going to be able to use and when I let the story write itself the story is about something metaphysical it isn't yeah. really about yeah. nausea and vomiting that was just the reason I was there yeah yeah yeah, it's and it's it's really profound that one. I think it's. Uh, I think you say it's it's, it's a, you, you watch a family finding themselves or or, 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 or something like this. It yeah. is at that moment um, when the man is dying that they sort of the family sort of aligns, doesn't it? Yeah, they just suddenly realise that they have always been a family. Watching yeah. the family discovering yeah. itself, I think was. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when it's. When 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 it's when it's not going well, are, are, are there strategies that you employ or, th or, or or things that you do? We we mentioned just before um uh, just before we went live that um uh, you run sometimes is uh, you, you you've already mentioned hoovering as a thing. Um, uh, what 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 um what things do you find help uh, the creative process? There's, there's a state that's similar to writing in that I don't understand it, which is um, thinking but not particularly thinking. Now, yeah. I might be describing meditation here, I'm not really sure. But it's a place where the mind goes when you're not asking it to do something in particular. And my mind does that when I'm out running. Yeah. Um, and it does that when I'm doing housework. Um, a disclaimer here, I don't do housework very often. But when I've got a big <laughs> thing to think about, I sometimes will do quite yeah. um, aggressive vacuuming. As you know, the, yeah. the days the books were published and I was very anxious, the house yeah. was just spick and span because I needed to do something with that energy. So there's a place that seems to be related to physical movement yeah. and perhaps even giving attention to something that doesn't require a lot of attention. So it's important to run the right direction, um, avoid tripping over potholes, yeah. um, you know, look out for stray dogs, things like that. It's important yeah. to 
get rid of the dust or move the cobwebs or that you see that tells you a lot about the state of my house doesn't it <laughs> um so so you're kind of paying attention but it leaves yeah. all the stuff behind that immediate attention all the stuff in yeah. your brain behind that can go yeah. on its holidays and i think that's what happens that ideas meet each other and become acquainted with each other um and so a little while after that or sometimes even during running um something will happen and think oh this idea that idea hmm. they kind of meet each other in this place here this is what the i don't know the node is where those hmm. ideas overlap isn't that interesting i've never seen that before and now that thing starts to occur in day-to-day -day life do you find this as well once you've had this idea that you think is the most original idea in the world then you hear somebody in a podcast talking about it or you read a phrase about it in a book and you think, damn it it's not my original yeah. idea at all yeah. but it's occurred to me in this particular way in that space behind yeah paying a bit of attention to something and leaving the brain to have just the room to do its thing yeah having you know explored a number of creative lives it's 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 a real thing that people have in common who who um who've made exceptional work is that they deliberately allocate time where they step away from the thing that they're doing and there's a um there's a, a famous advertising creative director um John Hegarty who says i always do my best thinking when i'm not thinking um and uh, there's a great story about um Leonardo da Vinci when he was painting the last supper and uh he uh he he used to just turn up look at the wall where he's going to paint the painting and then go wander around the garden and the guy the duke who'd hired him to make this painting got really pissed off because he you know he didn't seem to be doing anything and uh Leonardo da Vinci said those of lofty genius sometimes accomplish the most when they work the least um <laughs> I think is 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 really nice, and I, Einstein used to play the violin, you know, famously. So it's um, yeah, yeah. It, I, that it, Leonardo quote that he he obviously wasn't suffering about whether to call himself an artist, was he? No, he, he didn't have that stumbling block that some of us have. But <laughs> no, 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 I I don't think there was an ego problem there. With uh, you know, he was he was reasonably self assured. I think one of the. Um, one of the things that really occurred to me when I was reading the books is that I, you know, I, I come from a creative, non-scientific background, and uh, and what had never struck me before is that I, having read the books, there, there, there seems to be quite a lot of creativity in medicine, both in terms of how you choose to treat somebody, and, and maybe this is particularly true of palliative care, where you are you're dealing with a sort of um, a wide range of symptoms which you are trying to sort of um, ameliorate. And also in the way you navigate conversations with people. And mm. I, I think there are some, some brilliant examples um, in both books of you being incredibly imaginative in how you, you know, there's, there's the couple, there's the couple, the old elderly couple and the man, the woman's dying. I think she has cancer, and the husband is believes that she doesn't know how ill she is and doesn't want to tell her, and she doesn't want to tell him how ill she is because she thinks she'll upset him. And so they're both locked in this kind of personal 
ignorance, this place of pain, and and you have to be really imaginative about how you how you navigate that. Um, so um, I'm not sure what the question is from this, but it's more an observation, really. That there there seems to be to me one one requires more creativity in medicine than I had previously thought. I I think that's an interesting observation, and I think when when I look at the different branches of medicine. They, they are all about problem solving. And although it is a science and there are papers that will tell us the percentage chances that an individual person will respond to X, Y or Z treatment. So it is important that we're looking at the evidence in order to treat people or treat their illnesses appropriately. If we only treat the illness and we forget about the person, we're really on a hiding to nothing. Um, So yes, it's really interesting to me. I was very drawn to psychiatry as a medical student for exactly that reason, that the kind of profundity of trying to understand what is making this person tick and what is what's their experience that is diff- sufficiently different from average human experience that we've decided to give it a psychiatric diagnosis mm-hmm. and possibly even deprive them of their liberty because of it? What is going on here and what can be done to enable them to be sufficiently aware and sufficiently safe for themselves? that they can reintegrate into society in a way that is you know, enabling for them. That absolutely fascinated me. Um, and I suspect that I ended up in palliative care for a very similar reason, that when I was uh, a trainee doctor in cancer medicine, which had been the career plan, what I discovered was that although finding the cure for cancer was quite interesting, it mainly seemed to consist of drawing graphs and making calculations and none of the richness of the people's experiences were really being represented in that and the patients who were the most interesting to me were the people who so this is the mid-1980s so much bigger proportion then than now were not going to be cured and they knew that the the clock was ticking they knew that time was precious they had things they wanted to do and they had symptoms that were stopping them from doing those things. And getting that sorted out, and the reason for getting it sorted out, which is, of course, a story, just was so much more interesting to me. And just around that time, a hospice got built, actually walking distance from my house, although I very rarely walked there. But I, I wrote to them and asked for a job, and that's, mm. that's how I changed tack. But it was about the experience of people and the creativity that was required. Occupational therapists are perhaps our most creative practitioners because they will get alongside people who think they cannot do something that really matters to them. And if they can't do it the way they used to do it, then it's not worth doing it. And they will understand not just the mechanism of doing the thing, how your body needs to move so the thing can be achieved, how the things that you're trying to work with need to be modified so that they're achievable by what your body can do. 
they get inside what's the story this person is telling themselves about their disability, about their illness, about mm. the thing that they want to be able to do, that they want to be able to do the way they always did and yet can't. So there, I, I think if I was, if I understood now about the different medical careers, um, the way I have from working in teams, occupational therapy might have been the way that I would go because mm. it's all about helping people to be um, the architects of their own solutions by helping their body to be able to do more with its limitations and by changing the environment so that it's easier for them to act on. And it's so mm. creative. Mm, mm, mm. I was, yeah, I was, I was really struck by that. And um, palliative care, and um, particularly, seems to be more mindful of the whole individual than maybe other branches of medicine. And I, I think you, you, you look at people's physical, emotional, social, and spiritual needs. So all those, yeah. those aspects of a person are, are, are considered in their care. So this is um, the, the mantra from. Dame Cicely Saunders, that you know, this is this is holistic care, and the part of that that is quite intriguing when you talk to people is they get that physical is important. They want their body not to hurt. They want their breathing not to be an effort. They don't want to feel nauseated. They dislike having itch. Itch is an interestingly difficult symptom. Uh, they don't like not having enough energy. And they want the people that they love also to be as little impacted as possible by the situation. So the social bit makes sense and the emotional bit makes sense. But you get people saying to you, mm, spiritual, you know, are you, are you trying to convert me to some religion or is this a cult or what? So we often have to think with people about what do we mean by spiritual? There's a dimension of us that, is, that isn't described by physical, emotional and social and it's about who we think we are what we think we're worth what we think it's all about and how we make sense of it all and I think we go through life a lot of the time not really in touch with that component of ourselves except yeah. when we're brought up short every now and again and possibly when we've been in that state of flow and we come out the other side of it we realise we've had almost a transcendent experience during mm. that. Is it mm. physical? Is it emotional? Certainly mm. not social. What mm. is it? I, I think mm -hmm. that's spiritual. And some people will describe their spirituality in terms of religions, but I don't think you need to have a religion to be mm. a person who is having, who has a spiritual dimension to their person who has spiritual experiences. And yeah, it becomes yeah. very, very important towards the end of life where people really are asking themselves, well, mm. what was that all about? And what am mm. I worth? And have mm. I lived true to my values? Can I mm. be satisfied that I'm finishing a life well lived? Yeah. I think that's a spiritual question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think about that chapter where you address this question, um, why, 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 why do only the good die young? <laughs> so you're, um, as I, as I recall, some of the, um, some of the doctors and nurses in other parts of the hospital would say, why do you always get our favorite patients, <laughs> yeah. um, in the palliative care ward? And, and you have, um, well, your, your, your conclusion 
about this is really interesting, I think. Maybe you could um, just explain a little yeah. bit about so your reflections thing, on this question. Yeah, it's a, thing, it's a thing that's happened lots over the years. You arrive to see a particular patient on a ward um, or you go to uh, a general practice to ask to have a look at the notes of the patient before you go and make a home visit. And people say, why do you always get to see our best patients? You always get our nicest patients. And it makes me think, maybe only, maybe only nice people die. Maybe only, maybe only lovely people um, get difficult symptoms and need palliative care. And obviously turning that over and over, what I start to realise is there's something about knowing that we are mortal, that most of us only realise that we are mortal when we realise that we're dying that makes us not sweat the small stuff anymore. And as the saying goes, turns out everything's the small stuff. They are now really invested in what matters, and what matters is being in the moment, is the people who they love, it's their relationships, it's kindness. Um, And so people have this kind of, Okay, I'm going to use the word spiritual again, spiritual transformation, where they become a more relaxed, maybe, more generous version of themselves. Or maybe it's a less guarded version of themselves. So actually they are more themselves than perhaps they've ever been able to be in the rest of their lives. Because everything now matters in a different way. There isn't a day to come back and say this again. I can't just save this to think about another time. The only time that's guaranteed for any of us is now, this very, very moment, and they've got there. This is this is what Zen masters spend a lifetime trying to understand, that it is all about now, and only now is now. So, you know, they don't have personality transplants. If, if they've always been slightly grumpy and tetchy, they're still grumpy and tetchy. But perhaps they're less grumpy or less tetchy or a little bit more inclined to forgive afterwards or yeah. to suffer fools a little more gladly than previously. And it's yeah. about us really, I think, getting to that kind of personhood that says, I'm okay and you're okay. And it's okay. And all we've got is now, why would we make it miserable by falling out with each other? Why don't we just be together in this moment in a way that can at least bring us peace? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's there's that lovely image in the book, and you talk about a rose, you know, being at that sort of moment of absolute fulfilment just before the the petals fall off. Um, uh, It's it's, it's, it's fascinating, and, and... and kind of reassuring too. Um, you, what, what, one, one thing that it, it made me think um, is, is this sort of intersection between some of the realizations that come when, when a person is at their end of their lives and, um, and some of the things we experience in the act of making. <laughs> so just, 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 um, uh, it, it being in the present, you know, so you, you talked about that sort of state of flow and, and time falling away when you're writing and it's going well. And, 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 and now 
you've mentioned when somebody is is dying they they have this sudden awareness and you you mentioned one of my favorite interviews in the book which is the one with the playwright Dennis Potter when he's at the end of his life and 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 he talks about the the blossom outside his window being the whitest frothiest blossomest blossom you ever could see and um and i thought that's that's a truth isn't it that um that 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 we 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 so often these days in life i think are, 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 are sort of anxious about what's to come or reflecting on what's been or, or or locked in this sort of digital metaverse on our on our phones and devices and um and very often we we forget about the present this thing that is now yeah and that is so precious and what's really wonderful about being in a creative state and is very similar when you're with people who are at the very end of their lives is just that time itself seems not to matter it's all about experience it's all about being rather than doing and maybe that's why when we're doing the writing or doing the creating feels very done and when we're being creative when the when we're allowing the writing to happen the the completed work feels self-generated because actually we haven't been picking at it we haven't been Mm. critiquing it we've just simply Mm. allowed it to flow and sure Mm. the punctuation might be terrible you know, they're all underlined in red because the spellings are incredibly spontaneous, things like that. We can tidy later, but actually when when something needs to be created, we just have to give it the space. There's, there's, a, there's a chapter um, in With the End in Mind, which I wrote, I got up early one morning because I was seeing a face and a hairstyle and a toss of a head with a ponytail in my dreams. And I woke up and I thought, oh, I know who that is. I remember who she is. And I need to write her story. Her story needs to be written. And I got downstairs and it was very early in the morning. It was misty down the garden. And where I met her was close to the, the river up here. And it happened to be a misty sort of day. And when I finished writing, it was nearly dark. It was the other end of the day. And it, the story had kind of told itself in swirls. It was almost like the mist clearing and the story happening. And I'd taken a break in the middle of the day because I'd reached the point in the story where I left the house where I was visiting this family to go back to the hospice to get a particular drug that I needed. And somehow that allowed me to have lunch. And I realised that what I was doing was I was reliving that day, which had taken a whole day. And it's only as I'm saying it to you now, I realised that I didn't leave the house again until the road outside was lit by street lamps. 
So in the same way as this story declared itself over a day and mm -hmm. gave me a break in the middle, mm -hmm. that particular story had been lived over a day with this, mm. this break in the middle. And I hadn't seen that parallel before. Mm. And do you, do you find, have you found that, that people towards the end of their lives are making sense of their lives through their own stories? Oh, yeah. Very, very much so. And what they're starting to do is draw the stories together and also to realise that this thing that happened that was difficult helped me later on to be able to deal with this other thing that happened that would have been way more difficult if that previous difficult thing hadn't happened. Or this amazing thing that happened I would never have appreciated that if this previous unwanted thing hadn't landed in my life. So they're starting to retell the stories and join up different bits in different ways. So it's almost like they're taking a meta view of their mm. life towards the very mm -hmm. end. Who mm -hmm. am I? What am I about? How did I get to here? And it's almost like the whole book is open now and they can see all the different chapters but they can also see maybe there are place markers for each chapter yeah. Yeah. and they can plat those because this bit of the story wouldn't make sense here if this previous part hadn't already happened. So it's incredible watching people making sense of their joys and yeah. of their misfortunes and seeing yeah. them all as contributions to just the incredible gift of having had a chance to be alive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's really interesting and, and something that has occurred to me, you know, now I'm, I'm uh, nearly 50, and um, uh, it, it, it's often those periods in my life that have been really difficult and hard and maybe where things have seemed to have been mis where I've made mistakes, where things seem to have gone wrong, that have have led me closer to 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 being the kind of person that I feel I am. You know, in a way, it's those. It's it sounds a bit sort of cliche, hackneyed now, but it, I, I I think it's un, undoubtedly true. When we as human beings, we inevitably we we we've got quite a blinkered view of an event, haven't we? This thing happened today. <laughs> And it was terrible, and I wish it had not happened. But a week or a month or a year later, the the good stuff, which outweighs that bad thing, occurs, but only because of that bad thing. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. One of the things that I think we see people doing as they recall and reminisce and retell their stories is they create these little pools of light maybe spotlights on a stage or stepping stone as they're understanding themselves. And the thing that um, occurs to me often, and I know we all have this experience, is that we, we move through life completely perplexed by what to do next, which direction to go, this choice or that choice. Um, so the now that we're in is always forward-facing and always feels like, Anything could happen, and it could be a triumph or a disaster or completely neutral, but you just don't know. And so you feel like you're kind of doing this path through life that's complete 
Brownian motion. It's just utterly haphazard. And then when you stop in your little moment of now and you look backwards, there's this completely straight motorway (laughs) that leads from your birth to this moment via each one of the experiences that, as you say, has chipped a little bit off smoothed us out a little bit, taken some of our rough edges off, nudged us forward in a, in a way that turns out to have been fortunate and even nudges us forward in a way that turns out to be unfortunate and the unfortunate thing gives us keys to other things that we wouldn't have had mm. otherwise. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, the, 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 I don't know who it was who said that, the difficulty with life is it has to be lived forwards, but it can only be understood backwards. But that is an essential truth. Mm, mm, mm. One one um, uh, one thing I, I I'd not known and uh, was struck by in um, in reading with the end in mind was um, there's the um, there's the fellow who um, who who literally feels at the end of his life that he's about to make a journey and he's looking for his passport. Yeah. I think he was born in India and he, he wants to get back to India. And 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 you write, um, over the years I've met people who perplexedly search for their passports, ask their baffled loved ones to check their tickets, put random items into bags for the journey, as if this met, it's, it's, it's literally a journey that is yeah. about to happen. Um, uh, I thought that was fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating. And in that story, um, there's there's a very young, very clever doctor who wants to try and sort out the patient's mental state. And there's a very experienced nurse who says, if he's looking for tickets and passports, we need to get his wife here because he's dying. And the doctor doesn't understand. And the nurse, fortunately, overrules the doctor, as she should. Um, and and sends for the wife. So it's really interesting that people who've been at the bedsides of dying people describe these phenomena um, that are recurring. So I have had nurses call me because a patient who may be been admitted to hospital to have something relatively simple sorted out. We know he's been quite sick in the background, but he's expected to have this simple thing sorted out and go home again in the hospital, maybe even in the hospice, and the nurse phones and says, I just thought you should know that Mr. So-and-so has his long-dead mother sitting at the bottom of the bed chatting to him. And this is another one of those, okay, this is a thing that happens to people who are dying or who subliminally perceive themselves to be dying. We don't understand what the mechanism of it is, but possibly part of the life review Thing that is going on that they will uh, encounter people who are dead from their past and that they generally are not frightened by that experience they're very consoled by that experience um, and so you know I've often been mistaken for a patient's pa- parent or sister or friend right. um, Rarely, rarely mistaken for somebody's wife, interestingly. It's people from childhood, very often, who they're seeing. Okay. Um, and to be able to say, well, I, I'm, I'm not your mum, but it sounds like you really wish your mum was here right now. If your mum mm-hmm. was here, what would she do? What would she say? 
and we can go to that place where mum is almost here. Okay. And we can find the comfort and the consolation. And again, mm. it's a kind of storytelling, isn't it? It's being able to help the person re-encounter something in yeah. a way that makes sense to them. It's yeah. very, very precious. So yes, yeah. it's really interesting working with people who are you know, very experienced at yeah. end-of-life care. Because to other people, it might sound all a little bit um, woolly and strange. And we have to remind ourselves that we are um, scientists who practice the art of medicine. And yeah. we have to be able to recognize that there are some phenomena that science has not yet explained. But we can't discount them just because we can't explain them. Because mm. when we discount them, we miss the boat. We don't get the family to the bedside in time. Yeah. We have to recognise that there are things that we don't understand yet. They're quite like the idea that we don't understand it all. That yeah. Feels to me. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, yeah. I completely. Um, completely. Um, and navigating those unknowns, your your sort of journey through doing that is is um, is what makes the book so the books uh, so interesting. Um, you, you you say um, at one point. Um, we are the death wives. <laughs> There's this sort of thing, you know. Um, uh, you, w- there is birth and there is death, um, and and a death wife sort of implies that you are helping manage that transition, yeah. um, that incredibly natural trans- transition, but one that is is um, is obscured in 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 our modern society, isn't it? For the, it is. For the What's really lovely is there are there are people now starting to train to be end of life companions. Not right. to replace um, medical or nursing staff, but to be, to going back to my, my grandmother who understood dying from being there, one of the mm. things that would happen would be that the, the wise woman usually was a woman in the street who attended births, attended deaths, advised about the laying out of corpses, because that was her wisdom, that was her understanding. And we need that understanding and wisdom back in society mm. again. So one of the things that's lovely that's happened to me because of writing with the end in mind is that I become patron of an organisation called End of Life Doula UK. And okay. it's an organisation that represents and um, has a sister organisation that trains people to be wives, calm companions. Because we need people who've seen it often enough to be able to say to a family, this is okay, this is peaceful, this is comfortable. People who are deeply unconscious breathe in a weird way and it's disconcerting if you don't know what it is and you can misinterpret it as struggle and distress. But it's really important to have somebody there who can say, this is okay, this is safe, dying. And I talk a lot about dying safely and it sounds a bit wrong, doesn't it? But we can die safely. But also to have somebody who's experienced enough to say, Actually, no, this is not normal. What's happening now, this is not okay. And where are yeah. the numbers that we were given to get help if symptoms started to make the person distressed? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we shouldn't just sit back and tolerate this. There's a, there's a worry mm-hmm. sometimes. People say, oh, well, they're dying. What else do you expect? There's no point in asking the doctor or getting the district nurse. Yes, there is. Um, so putting that wisdom back into society so that we can 
be familiar with dying and we can begin the stories that we console ourselves with in bereavement around a deathbed. And we watch families doing this. We watch families um, constructing the story. You know, they arrange rotors and people are together and then one shift finishes and they're going to go home and get some sleep and the next shift comes in. And we watch them saying, oh, so Uncle Bill hasn't been awake since 10 o'clock last night. Um, The nurses came in through the night and they, they commented on how peaceful and comfortable he looked. Well done, those nurses. Because they could have just observed that he looked peaceful and comfortable and not said that out loud to the family. And the family would have been hearing noisy breathing and thinking Uncle Bill was having a terrible time. So the nurses have given them some words to explain what's going on. And they've now handed them on to the next shift. So the next shift picks up. And when they exchange shifts, they say, "Okay, so Uncle Bill was awake around about 10 o'clock the night before last. And then the nurses said he was comfortable through the night. And that's what our cousins said as well. And then today he opened his eyes and talked about the score for the Liverpool game and had a cup of tea at lunchtime. And then he's gone back to sleep again and we haven't had anything from him since. That story, all the chapters of that story will be recounted at the funeral. They'll be Mm -hmm. recounted in the days after the funeral. It will become the story of the way Uncle Bill died and how we knew that he was comfortable, that he was safe, that we were around him, that we are a family, that we belong to each other. And it's so consoling to have a coherent narrative through which we can understand all the things that happen to us in life. We make stories out of all of them. But this is one of the most important things, that as dying people, we help our people who will survive us, who will be bereaved of us, to have a coherent story to tell themselves, to console themselves in their grief. Storytelling is is what it's all about. Absolutely. I think this is a conversation about stories, isn't it? That's um, that is our theme, really, um, and the, the the power and the the value of stories um, yeah. of all kinds. So I, I'm aware we're we're almost at the end of our almost at the end of our time here. Um, so um, I thought I'd finish, Catherine. We're just reading a, a short paragraph, if it's all right, if it doesn't feel too weird, from your book, because I'm aware that some people. Um, won't have read uh, either of the books yet. So I, I, I just share a brief extract to finish. Um, After sitting at so many deathbeds and accompanying the final parts of so many people's journeys, a peculiar familiarity with dying becomes a daily companion. Strangely, this is not a burden or a sadness, but a lightening of perspective and a joyful spark of hope, a consciousness that everything passes whether good or bad, and the only time that we can really experience is this present, evanescent moment. Thank you um, very much for joining me um, today on the Wind Thieved Hat. It's, um, it's, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to talk to you, and, and thank you so much for these two books. Um, we've, we've, we've focused on the one. Maybe we need to do a part two um, uh, about Listen, um, but I... I'm, I'm really grateful for having you here. So thank you, Catherine. And I've really, really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you so much. I, I think I've got lots to reflect on now when we've 
when we put the when we put the phone down I was going to say when we closed down so interesting yeah. to just think about the process and maybe maybe I am a writer maybe. I, I, I I think um, uh, I think you might be yes I think you might be it's time go for it <laughs> Cool. Well, um, uh, with the end in mind and listen are both available in paperback from all good bookshops, as they say, and they're both full of wisdom and wonderful stories. Um, So thanks, Catherine, very much. Thank you. So there we go. What a lovely conversation. I'll put links to Catherine's books in the show notes, as well as a link to that Dennis Potter interview we mentioned. If you haven't seen it, it's really worth a watch. I'll be back soon with copywriter's copywriter, Dan Nelkin, who's brilliant not just on copywriting, but on creativity in general. Until then, goodbye.